And we're live. Friends from around the world, welcome to The Great Debate. Not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather a debate where both sides come together to find common ground. It's great to have you all here with us. And happy Purim. For those who don't know, Purim is a Jewish holiday which commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from Haman, who was uh, from the Persian Empire. He planned on killing all the Jews. And we were rescued. A lot of our Jew, a lot of our holidays are us being saved from uh, people trying to kill us. Purim is considered one of the happiest holidays of the month of the year. It's in the month of Adar. I was not born in this month, but it's a cool little factoid. And it's a holiday where people are meant to dress up and get drunk. Essentially, that's not why I'm wearing this. This is just coincidental, to be completely honest. Um, this is a owl costume. I forgot who made it. I wish I, I didn't because I'd love to shout her out, but um, it's actually been through Burning Man and Midburn, which is Israel's uh, bur uh, Burning Man. Uh, so it has a lot of mileage, mileage, mileage on it, the good kind of mileage. Um, yeah, but enough about my owl costume. What are we here to do? We're to, here to have an important conversation with two people whom I re respect tremendously. The topic of today's conversation is one state solution versus two state solution or something in between. We're gonna talk all about solutions. As always, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. We have our visionary members, that's Trivium Energy Pty Ltd. We have SOG Cannabis, and we have Max Marine. If you'd like to become a patron, you can find a link in the description and, uh, you know, just know the patrons really help support this channel and really help us do what we do. And that's aid in the reconciliation process between people in conflict. There's other ways to support. If Patreon's not your thing, we have a PayPal link and also we accept Bitcoin and Ethereum. So check that out. Any support is greatly appreciated. If you're new to the channel, like subscribe, and uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. As always, we're going to do an after party in Discord. For those who don't know what Discord is, come and you'll find out. But it's an opportunity to engage with our guests. And without further ado, Gershon Baskin and Zahir. It's great to have you both here. To my top right, Gershon Baskin is an Israeli author and peace activist. He has, he has authored or co-authored 15 books on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and has been active in promoting peace since the 70s. Gershon is one of the only Israelis alive who has contact with Hamas and played an integral role in the release of Gilad Shalit. Zahir, the mystery man, the fan favorite. Zahir is a young Palestinian who is active in disrupting the status quo and engaging in the reconciliation process with Israelis. His family is in politics in the West Bank, so he remains anonymous for his own security. Great to have you both here. Um, Gershon, I've been waiting to have you on the show for a long time, so welcome. Thank you, my pleasure. We're gonna start by, first question to you, Gershon, because I know you've been a, a big supporter of the two-state solution for many, many years. There's a growing notion that the two-state solution is no longer viable. What are your thoughts on that? Let me start by saying, going back in, in history, I actually published my first op-ed article in a Jewish newspaper in 1975 calling for a two-state solution. 
Um, it was published in the in the uh, Jewish Radical, a newspaper that came out of Berkeley. Um, I was 18 or 19 years old at the time, uh, and I had come to the conclusion that uh, since I was interested in Israel being the nation state of the Jewish people, and and also determined that Israel be a democratic state, my sense was that the only way for Israel to in fact be the the democratic nation state of the Jewish people would be to partition the territory uh, that Israel controlled between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea so that there would be two states for two people. My vision of two states for two people was always based in the idea that it would be a division of sharing and not a division of walls and fences and separation or the paradigm that the Oslo uh, peace process turned into that only through cooperation cross boundary and free movement of people and interaction and, and cooperation could we in fact ever have peace. And, and therefore my vision of two states was a very different vision than, than what's emerged over the last years of a failed peace process, which never stated officially the two state solution. Um, and I believe that that was the, the solution to the conflict because it enabled both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people to have a territorial expression of their identity, which is what I believe the conflict was always about, that each side claimed that it owned the territory, that it belonged to the territory, that it had sovereignty over the territory, and they were not interested in having a one-state, non-ethnic, non-national, non-religious state, in other words, the democratic a state of Israel-Palestine was not what for a hundred years Jews and Arabs have been willing to fight to die and to kill for. So I thought that the only way to have a territorial expression of our identity on this land was to find some way of dividing it. Where the question of how to divide it and where to divide it is a big question, but the principle had to be one that we're in fact sharing it while we're dividing it. Um, the failure of the peace process and the the basic um, belief of both peoples living in this land that there is no partner for peace on the other side, and whether you're an Israeli or a Palestinian, you probably claim that you want peace, but the people on the other side don't want peace. And that's a result of the failure of the peace process has moved us along in a direction that seems to me to make the partition of the land and the division into two states almost impossible today. And that's very sad because I'm not sure that there is another solution in the foreseeable future. Um, we are living in a period of no solution uh, with very little hope for a solution. And I know that people talk about one state or federation or confederation and all different kinds of models. <clears throat> right now we have a long period of time where we're not even talking to each other. So I don't think we get anywhere. There's no solution without talking to each other. There's no solution without negotiations. There's never going to be an imposed solution here. No one is going to determine for us Israelis or Palestinians what the solution is. It has to be homegrown and it has to be developed by us. And, that, and that's where I think we're at today, which is very sad. Thank you, um, Gershon. So you are... are you're, it seems like you're definitely, as much as you'd like the two-state solution, you're open to looking, exploring new solutions because it, it today seems much less viable than, it, than at any other point in history. For sure. I mean, I think that we have to get back to the drawing board. I, I started IPCRI, the Israel-Palestine Center for Research and Information, back in March of 1988 
in the third month of the, of, the, of the first Intifada with the notion that we know what the solution is. We declared that it's two-state for two people, but we didn't know how to do it. And over 24, 24 years, I put together more than 2,000 joint Israeli-Palestinian working groups trying to come up with solutions to all the questions that were involved in borders, security, Jerusalem, refugees, economic development, you name it, tourism, agriculture, antiquities, every subject that could be thinkable of cross-boundary nation in nature. And we put together working groups to come up with solutions. And after many years, I was an advisor to two Israeli prime ministers and worked with the Palestinian negotiating team. And uh, if there was a dedication to a two-state solution, we know how to do it. But it just doesn't seem like it's a viable option today. Maybe it'll come back. I have big doubts about that. It's too many changes have taken place on the ground. And I think what we've lost the majority of the young Palestinians behind a two-state solution. That doesn't necessarily mean that it can't change, but it seems unlikely at this time. Right. So we actually have here with us a relatively young Palestinian who who has done just what you suggested, gone back to the drawing board, and he did so with another counterpart, uh, Rafi Gassel, who's been who's a frequent on the show and a community member of ours. Um, Zahir, why don't you take it away and kind of uh, explain what you and Rafi have been working on and let, you know, maybe Gershon's on board. Maybe there'll be some uh, difference in opinion. Maybe certain aspects he'll view as less viable. But, you know, we're, we're here to explore just that. Sure. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll start by uh, speaking about some of the background, touching on some of the points that Gershon mentioned, because I... Uh, I agree with the sentiment that uh, the two-state solution is dead, and to some extent, I'm I'm happy that it is. Um, I think uh, ideologically uh, and historically, I, I always found I always found uh, the two-state solution to sort of miss the point of uh, you know the entirety of uh, the I mean the reason for the rise uh, of Palestinian nationalism in the first place, Hezbollah's um, and uh, 1932 um, and sort of the early negotiations. I mean, ultimately, uh, Palestinian nationalism was born uh, largely as an attempt to galvanize a movement to uh, preserve people's ability to live on their land. And a big part of why the conflict um, endures so much and why it's difficult to galvanize deep grassroots support for two states um, is because partition has never been a particularly popular idea amongst Palestinians. Um, we've been willing to accept it as a pragmatic reality simply because we had no other choice, but it was always under some notion of a hoodna. I mean, the best, the, the only way our politicians can sort of sell two states to us behind the scenes is um, partially with something along the lines of, you know, this is a temporary thing. And Arafat saying, you don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. Um, and, and a big part of that is just simply that so much of the population of the West Bank and Gaza aren't from the West Bank and Gaza. Gaza. Um, even in my own ancestry, you know, maternally, we, we're from Akka, you know, Akko. So um, it's uh, for a lot of people, given that Afro Palestinian nationalism was really this unification of tribes and clans from all over the land, um, it sort of didn't make any sense. I mean, effectively, what we all had in common is this like national struggle. Um, you know, against what we saw was, uh, you know, a foreign power that, uh, you know, arrived in our lands. Um, and uh, as soon as you take away the land element, um, you, you end up with, you know, a, a politician from Nablus or uh, Janine 
saying, well, I'm perfectly happy with being on this side of the fence because this is where I'm from. And the rest of the population being only willing to accept it as a hood now, you know, as a temporary measure. I mean, on the one hand, we get self-determination, uh, you know, an end to military rule. But um, in a similar sense to sort of, uh, you know, Jewish connection to the land, like tomorrow Jerusalem, uh, we, we're always going to hold on to this notion of, well, one day the land will be whole. One day I'll be able to come back to Akka. One day I'll be able to return to people will be able to return to Hefa. And so much of our literature and our music and our you know identity is focused around that. So I think it's a lot harder to get people excited um, or feel that uh, you know Palestinian nationalism can be represented in part of the land. And, uh, on the flip side, you know, on the Israeli side, that, that that certainly seems like we're not particularly interested um, uh, in peace. You know, uh, uh, the phrase "from the river to the sea" you know, seems to you know trigger Israelis. Um, and then the the shifts sort of occurred on the ground, as uh, Gershon uh, mentioned. So you know. 800,000 settlers in East Jerusalem and the West Bank later. I mean, you look at how hard it was to evacuate the settlements in Gaza um, and uh, Israeli politics today, where A, the conflict is not particularly relevant. It's not very high on people's to-do list. Um, and we're sort of in the uh, permanent temporary solution. Um, the status quo presently makes a lot of sense if you're an Israeli voter. Why mess with things? You've got relative security. Um, you know, the conflict is not as intense as it used to be. Um, you seem to have all the chips, you know, with, with new with new realized uh, Arab normalization, um, uh, as well as the fact that the political coalitions include the uh, Israeli settlers. Um, it seems exceedingly unlikely that, A, there will be political uh, and a political imperative inside Israel to even engage with uh, um, a solution um, on any... Uh, and if they do engage with the solution, there is an expectation that they're negotiating for a position of tremendous strength. You know, uh, meanwhile, on the Palestinian side, uh, our identity and our uh, sort of our uh, narrative in the whole conflict is one of support uh, and one of persistence. And so uh, the biggest step for a Palestinian thinking about any solution is about consent. You know, uh, if I sign a piece of paper saying that, okay, these are our borders, this is this 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 part is our homeland, and the other side is the Israeli side, uh, Palestinians have always felt that that is, uh, you know, as a people, providing some some you know implied consent for the history that has occurred, um, and effectively detaching them from the lands that they still feel an attachment to, and so while it's amusing that the figure is something like forty percent, you know, in a lot of these polls, like I wonder. Um, whether that figure is roughly the people who are from the you know actually from the towns of the West Bank, while the people, the refugees, and from Akka or Haifa or these other locations uh, find a deal like that much harder to accept, um, which you know uh, it makes sense. I mean, it's uh, so, so this is sort of the backdrop on all of this. I mean, there are ideological reasons why people are opposed to it, and there's also the political reality which has changed. Um, and any de- most of the deals on the table look like progressive, bounty, you know, bountistanization, things like the Trump plan and whatnot. Um, meanwhile, uh, I I do think you know, in the spirit of sort of what Gershon was talking about, you know, even if you do design a two-state solution, there is tremendous cooperation and shared interests between the two states, you know, for for either of them to be viable, economically, security-wise, borders, um, and then there's the matter of a shared capital, which seems realistically um you know the most likely outcome and so you, you already find yourself in something of a confederation um and the idea of an economic union you know between uh, israel and palestine has been there since the very beginning um 
And so on the one hand, there's a need for autonomy and governance. Um, you know, there are certainly enough differences between the two people that you can have a tyranny of the majority. Um, and so, you know, one binational state that looks something like a bigger Knesset or a bigger Palestinian parliament um, doesn't seem particularly viable. Um, on the other hand, the division of the land creates both ideological splits as well as displacement of people. Um, and so uh, naturally, you gravitate towards something like a federation. Um, uh, so looking at a constitutional design that allows for regional autonomy. Um, and, I, and I actually don't think a binary one is, is, the, is the way to go there, but I can get into that a bit later. Um, that allows for regional autonomy while still preserving uh, the unity of the land. Um, and if you actually look at demographics today, I think that they support this idea. You know, there's a very large Arab population in Akka, um, you know, in, in Beersheba, in uh, some in Haifa. So the, the land doesn't really look like these simple sort of 67 borders map that people have in their head when they picture the two states. Um, and so to me, it, it looks a lot more like a series of, you know, uh, states within a federation or cantons um, with distinct levels of conservatism, uh, cultural values, as well as old tribal identity um, on the uh, Palestinian side and, and regional history that kind of creates a fairly natural uh, divide between these regions. Um, and yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's the gist of the idea. Thank you, Zahir. Um, so, so Gershon, based off, you know, what, first of all, feel free to just comment on, on anything Zahir said that you like, but based off your understanding of the Federation, is that something that you think is, is viable, something that we could actually make a reality? I, I, look, I, I'm, in principle, I don't have any problem with the idea. In fact, it, it sounds pretty ideal. Um, the, the problem is that we don't live in ideology or in um, some utopia. In the idea of having a federation with a, a, a constitution that determines equality for all and enables us to all live anywhere on the land whether you're Israeli or Palestinian, Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, is is ideally what we should strive for. Um, even in the days when I worked on trying to convince people to support a two-state solution, whenever I encountered people who wanted a one-state solution, whatever format that one state took, um, I used to say that the best way to get to a one-state solution was through a two-state solution. First, let's establish peace and normal relations, um, let's end the conflict, let's find a way of working together, crossing those borders and uh, building uh, the, the, the uh, coexistence, so to speak, between the two states as a way to get there. But obviously today we're, we're far away from there. Um, I, I don't have a problem getting together with Israelis and Palestinians and sitting down and figuring out a different model. The question is, what kind of model can we find that we can agree on? I think it's going to be very difficult for Jews to give up the idea of a sovereignty, of control of their own destiny. I admit that I no longer call myself a Zionist because I no longer support what's done in the name of Zionism, the ideal of Zionism being a Jewish liberation movement for the Jewish people and establishing the right of the Jewish people to be recognized and having self-determination has has gone off the wire, has gone, has gone berserk, and, and what's done in the name of Zionism no longer represents what I believe in. 
Um, so I, I was never one of these, you know, flag waving nationalists. Um, what was essential for me is that this be a place where Jews could live safely in security and have an expression of their identity on this land. But I have no problem sharing the land and working out a constitution and doing what Zahir is talking about, having a federation. Um, I, I know my, my first two years living in Israel back in 1978, 79 till 1981, I lived in, in a Palestinian village inside of Israel, in Wadi Ara, in Kufarkara, eh, where I did community-based volunteer work. That was my real introduction to eh, eh, Israel when I when I migrated here. Um, and, and I did that for ideological reasons, because I thought it was essential to know the other people living here, to live with them, to learn their language, and to be part of a different kind of Israel. So in principle, theoretically, I don't have a problem with anything that Zahir said. I think that there's a built-in recognition in the idea of a federation or a confederation that the entire land from the river to sea is important to everyone who lives here. It's important to Jews. I mean, why, why do Jews go and settle in Judea and Samaria? When, when you started out, Adar, talking about Jewish history and Jewish holidays, when we read the Torah, we're telling the stories not of the beaches of Tel Aviv, but of the hilltops and the valleys of Judea and Samaria. That's the historic land of Israel. And that's why people went to go and settle there, or a lot of people went to go and settle there, was because that's where the story of our nation begins. And I understand for Zahir, who's an Akawi, the importance of of uh, of the attachment to the historic land of Palestine, which is is the, all the land of Palestine from the river to the sea. So I think if there was a way that we could figure out how to share it peacefully, and have that territorial expression of our identity in a common state with a constitution that guarantees all of our rights and finds finds the way to give us cultural autonomy. Um, in, in that sharing, that, that would be ideal. It's, it, it would be the ultimate solution. Thanks, thanks, Gershon. So, yeah, Z Zahir, Gershon mentioned something that I think is many, most Israelis concerned with any one state solution model, whether it's a binational state or a federation, and that's the issue of Israeli sovereignty. So, so how does um, the Federation of Israel-Palestine, uh, I'm correct, that's what it's called? That's what your, your plan is called? I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the no. name is sort of uh, secondary. Uh, the, the we've actually we actually called the uh, political framework Ratz uh, Art, just the land, um, uh, for partially because uh, sitting there trying. The, the name is rather secondary, um, at least to to the core uh, governance, and you know you can kind of get lost in national symbolism. Uh, you know uh, what to call things. Um, uh, and, and, and you know, symbolism carries so much weight that it distracts from fundamentally actually trying to ask the questions. Now, the, the point of the plan isn't that this has to be exactly the plan. It's it's more about uh, trying to design a framework that answers a lot of these questions. So I think uh, as far as, uh, I mean, th there is this leftover element for political Zionism and sort of like your like traditional Darjud and start mindset that's very fixated on demographics. You see this in like very old um sort of uh negotiations right from the start people talking about percentages um you know uh the arab executive committee saying okay we'll accept 40 percent you know in a binational state and 
uh, you know, the Zionist leadership getting back to them, you know, re refusing that, um, uh, preferring a partition and vice versa. And even after the ethnic cleansing and, and Nakba, there remains this concern about, you know, what would the destiny of this remaining large Arab demographic inside the land be and how would it affect, you know, this notion of uh, Jewish self-determination um, and ethno-nationalism. So uh, this is this old prevailing idea. In practice, it really isn't as relevant as it seems. So uh, the reality is it's not, I mean, there are so many governance models in so many countries that provide a design for how you can actually have many different identities, many different nationalisms and different groups of people within a, uh, you know, federal framework. Um, and it, it really just depends on how federal you are. Um, it becomes a case of what goes in my federal government is the stuff that we definitely have in common. I would say, you know, security and army, uh, border control, uh, uh, you know, an economic union currency, um, and probably foreign relations and everything else then sort of on the table. You know, is it a federal education system or do you allow it to be regional? Um, but uh, as far as sovereignty goes, um, I think one of the one of the easiest ways to look at it is to actually get out of the armistice line um, mentality. I mean, it is an armistice line. Uh, it's actually not where the populations are. And if you actually, if you actually look at a heat map of the land, it kind of goes from north to south. And you have, you have the Jordan Valley, which is relatively unpopulated, with some settlements there. Um, you know, heavily populated, extremely densely populated Palestinian cities, and an extremely densely populated Gaza, and then a sort of uh, you know Arab Arab heat map that flows down from Akka to to uh, Beersheba. And, through East Jerusalem, the thing is all over the place. It looks nothing like sixty-seven borders. And uh, one of the easiest answers for how to, you know, draw things up comes from the history of the land itself, which has often been that of tribal, you know, confederations, and um, effectively persists to this day as an identity. I mean, Hebron has a has an identity. Uh, Nablus or Shechem has an identity. The, these regions largely operated as a city, and then a bunch of villages around there, you know, as a Qaba. So it's something that's very not you know it's something that's already present. They have this history. They have cultural differences, dialects, um, uh, as well as different political uh, needs. So you know you have regions that are far more conservative than others. Um, you know, high level Ramallah seems significant. You know, seems like the, the our version of Tel Aviv. You know, we, we're sort of more cosmopolitan, more modernized, uh, more culturally liberal, um, while. Uh, you know, Janine and uh, other areas are more conservative. So you can already see a desire for different laws. I mean, a lot of Israelis uh, <laughs> like to make fun of Tel Aviv for being so different to the rest of the country. Um, and I actually think it it begs a question inside of Israeli politics. I mean, you've got the fourth, ele fourth election in uh, two years, and there is there is this, uh, you know, internal division. Uh, I mean, there's lots of different ideas of what the state should look like. You know, complains about the Rabbanut, how, how secular should the state should be. Um, and uh, providing, you know, creating a federation of states um, that allow for more effectively localism, um, you know, different governance in different regions is a, is one way to achieve more stability. It's a lot easier to get 500,000 or 800,000 people to share a common set of values and build an identity around, you know, what they want their laws, uh, holidays, um, how conservative or religious they want their area to be while maintaining some you know, basic bill of civil rights across the entire land, a common criminal justice system, um, than it is to get a nation with rapidly different degrees of religiosity, uh, multiple religions, uh, you know, multiple cultures who don't even share the same language um, to agree on things. Um, 
And so that, that's sort of a, at the heart of the issue. And there is this perception when people talk about, you know, a unified state that there's going to be this rush of uh, people who are going to move, um, you know, to Jewish areas or assimilation or whatnot. Um, and if you look at the history of Arab Israelis, you know, or Palestinian Israelis uh, inside of um, Israel, uh, you find they tend to actually flock to our other Arab areas and, and uh, vice versa. And so people generally, you know, these areas do develop a cultural identity. People kind of flock around each other. Um, and then as far as connection to land, it, it goes both ways and kind of is the only incentive that I, I, I think you can give people to rally behind an idea. So I personally get far more, you know, I, I can be passionate about a solution that, uh, you know, allows me to live anywhere in historic Palestine. And I think, uh, as far as Israeli society, there is actually a trend away from secularism, um, far more interest in cultural connection to you know these old cities inside the west bank um that have had um, you know uh, ancient uh, jewish history in them um and far less desire to actually uh, cut off you know far less desire to actually cut off the settlements from the rest of the land so they're they're kind they're, there is this momentum that you can ride on both sides on the one hand there is no real incentive for negotiation on either side um specifically not on the israeli side we don't really have any chips um, on the Palestinian side, there is no hope um, for a future, and there's there's certainly no um, ideological reason to get behind a political solution that the PA puts forward that you know that lets us uh, gives us some fraction of sixty seven borders that you know we already weren't that ideologically excited about. Um, uh, so it, it, it gives people a reason to actually mobilize, um, to actually be passionate about a, a future or a vision for what the country could look like. Um, it also addresses, I think, what people feel is the, you know, kind of like primary sin and why the solutions are always a hudna. Um, uh, you know, you have the, the Nakba and the Naksa, the destruction of villages and the ethnic cleansing that has occurred since. And I, I guess starting with a two-state solution um, and cutting people off from that land and expecting the people to grow closer together, I think, is unlikely. Um, simply because one of the chief grievances people are carrying behind them is, hey, I am from this village that was destroyed, and I have no ability to visit this place that made my grandfather built or uh, my great-grandfather lived in. Um, and so there is this permanent resentment that is always going to stay there, um, uh, that people will kind of hold on to ideologically. So that's why I, we, we've, both in polling and um, you know, in speaking to people, we find the idea people have found the idea relatively appealing compared to other solutions um uh as far as you know concerns about sovereignty and some of the common political paradigms i think we've been we, we, we've been in this language um you know this oslo language for so long people have forgotten how to talk about the conflict in any other way i mean if you ask anyone on the street what potential solution could there ever be they'll kind of be like vaguely you know 67 borders two states they They've heard the word tossed around so much. It's kind of the only thing they can envision. Um, but when you actually explain to people what their lives would look like, namely largely the same, um, you know, Tel Aviv's demographics are probably going to stay the same. Haifa's are going to stay the same. Most of these regions are going to stay relatively similar. Um, you will have a state legislature, you know, uh, in each of these cantons that will represent you on state-level matters. Um, and a federal government that, you know, provides joint, security economic and uh, foreign relations um you know uh, role and i i think that is a 
ideologically an easy vision to sell on, certainly on the Palestinian side, and I think uh, to a portion of Israeli society. Um, and it starts to allow you to build a coalition where kind of you have, you have two groups of people who are getting all of what they want, uh, rather than having to compromise on stuff that I think is chiefly the only reason to still be here. I mean, uh, you know, life in the, the Palestinian territories is not easy. Um, and there are a lot of people who can leave who choose to stay. And a big part of that is their connection to the land and their connection to, to, uh, you know, this place. Um, and it gives you an idea of what, uh, motivates people to engage in the first place. Um, and, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, I think what, that is why heading down this direction makes it, um, I find a lot more hopeful um, to galvanize people to think outside the, you know, twenty-year Oslo box. I I, I think that um, I think it is a lot easier to sell to the Palestinian side than it is to sell to the Israeli side, and I think the Israelis would be quite fearful of it. Um, I think one of the reasons is the total disconnect between the two people, and the total delegitimation of any contact. Um, that exist on both sides, but much more on the Palestinian side than on the Israeli side. Um, I, I think, for instance, and I hate to bring up old issues, but but it, it, it pushes the need for us to, for instance, re-examine what we teach our kids. Um, and and um, education is is a big issue in terms of what what kind of opportunities we're opening up in the minds of ourselves and our young people with regard to the future. And I think it's essential that we re-engage and we begin to talk about other solutions and other possibles. But today, it's almost impossible to do that. The whole anti-normalization movement, which makes any contact across those borders illegitimate today and threatening, in fact, um, when Palestinians have to hide the fact that they're even talking to Israelis, as, as we have this evening with, with you, Zahir, unfortunately, having to hide your identity. Um, it's very unfortunate that's a part of the reality. The Palestinian educational system has gone from bad to worse in terms of the messaging that it's giving of the total delegitimation of the right of any Jews to even be here. Um, the, the Palestinian textbooks keep getting worse. And, and of course, that's a reflection of the horrible reality on the ground of the continuation of the occupation, the expansion of settlements, and the harsh uh, behavior of both the Israeli army, the Israeli government, and most uh, the Israeli settlers with their violence against Palestinians. But if, if we want to open up a discussion that talks about a different kind of living together in this land, a federation or a confederation or whatever other model we come up with, it has to be through a process of us re-engaging and dialogue and talking to each other and meeting each other and recognizing whether whether it's difficult or not, the legitimacy that we're all here. Even if you want to delegitimize or you don't believe in the legitimacy of the historical claims of both people on this land, if we don't embrace the fact that we're all here and we're all staying here and we're all going to be here in the future, then, then there's no way that we can get into a discussion that's that's even desirable um, for a majority of Israelis, even for a minority of Israelis. It's difficult if if, if the Palestinian side won't recognize their, their legitimacy of being here, their connection to their land. And and this is something uh, that, that needs to be addressed. It has to be if we're going to sit down and have a different kind of conversation. Th thanks, uh, Gershon. R real quick, Zahir, I just want to 
kind of pitch an idea to, to Gershon about convincing Israelis. Do you think that one thing that could potentially help is, is explaining to them that one of the benefits of, of a federation in a canton system, it gives autonomy. It, it, it seems to solve a problem be, between the ultra-Orthodox and the sec- secular Israelis. And there is growing tension. And it's essentially we have two populations or that could even be split into more than two who are fighting over what the what the nation looks like, like on a fundamental level. Will there be buses on Shabbat? Do stores open on Shabbat? Um, there's a whole set of issues that you have two sects of the population essentially are, you know, playing tug of war with. And it's creating a lot of tension. It almost seems like one way to convince them that local autonomy is good is by explaining that it not only can be an elegant solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, but also to the to the Haredi Chiloni uh, divide. No, I, don't, think- I, don't, I don't think that that's, it fits into the discussion. I think there is a an ongoing discussion in Israel on the level of local autonomy and the ability to decide the nature of each region of this country and how it deals with issues of religion and state. I mean, let's remember Haifa used to officially have buses that ran on Shabbat. Uh, There there were these things that happened that are decided on a local level. The disproportionate power of Haredim in Israel has a lot to do with the political structure of the the country and the fact that the, the political issues in the country today are mainly Netanyahu yes or Netanyahu no. Um, the empowering of the Haredim is a, is as a result of that. It's not an ideological di- divide. It's on the nature of one person. We're going into our fourth set of elections in two years over one issue. One issue. Netanyahu yes or Netanyahu no. If Netanyahu was not running in the Likud, we would have a, a government for a long time already. Um, and it's not about the Palestinian issue. It's not even about religion and state, although those issues need to be decided. Personally, I, um, uh, I I would like to see a federation in terms of issues of religion and state. I can tell you as someone who is not a religious Israeli that I thank God, so to speak, all the time that I have Palestinian neighbors because I have shops and restaurants and places that I can go to on Shabbat that are open and living in Jerusalem. That's important for me because my neighborhood is closed down, but Beit Safafa, which is very close to me, is open, or East Jerusalem, or the old city is open, and that, for me, is is a blessing. In fact, the whole idea of Jerusalem being a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-religious city, a mosaic of identities, is the blessing of Jerusalem. It's what I love most about living in Jerusalem, and if that could be expanded on a a national model, that, that that would be wonderful. But again, I think if you want to convince Israelis that there's an option to live in peace with the Palestinians in any framework, one state, two states, ten states, or, or whatever model, it has to be a re-engagement and a, and, a, and a recognition by Palestinians that Jews have a right to be here. And I know that's difficult for them to do. But if you want to rebuild a partnership, a sense of partnership, it has to come from that. Just as Israelis have to recognize that Palestinians are here and are, are part of a parcel of this land, that this is their land as well. It, it has to be this mutual recognition. And, and that goes back to the whole beginning of this conflict. Yeah, you, you know, it, it, I, I want to emphasize the importance of what you said. We, we just had somebody in the comments say Israelis should go back to Europe 
Not to mention that only around 50% of Israeli Jewish Israelis are in fact Ashkenazi, but um, they don't understand that comments like that only fan the flames of fear and hate and, and ultimately cause more harm to the Palestinians as well. So that rhetoric needs to stop immediately. Um, right. I'm with my, my wife's family is from Iraq. Um, they don't have any place to go back yeah, to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Zahir, the floor is yours, brother. Sure. I mean, uh, Gershon touched on a lot of important points. Um, as far, I'll get into sort of the history and uh, I think uh, the reconciliation narrative differences that I, ex- I think exist between the two sides. Uh, but just on the anti-normalization front, I, I think there are two elements to that. So uh, there's an element of anti-normalization, which is sort of uh, artificial. It's actually more to do with uh, the discomfort of uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, the PLO, and Palestinians communicating directly with Israelis, uh, or you know, Palestinian organizations or groups or even clans, uh, simply because it, it prov- provides an alternative. You know, it creates the sense that they are undermining the official, you know, position, uh, sort of uh, you know, letting the side down. Uh, and whatnot by uh, going off and having their own thoughts about how things should be done, uh, which I think is deeply ironic given that we haven't had an election in 14 years. Uh, our upcoming one is uh, to some extent, um, you know, uh, a choice between two non-choices. Um, I mean, there is no real ability to, you know, there's no real freedom of expression, no real ability to form our own political parties or movements. Um uh, and Israel plays uh, a big role, uh, has a big role to play in that, um, uh, um, as well as uh, generally general censorship, um, you know, issues with uh, establishing Palestinian media, uh, news networks. Um, so th- there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but, but a big part, one part of anti-normalization is in, for, in fact a form of political suppression. Um, there is a so separate is, form. So here it is, it is very ironic that the ultimate in um, normalizers are the Palestinian Authority themselves. They're the ones who carry on the day-to-day relations with Israel, the security coordination, the purchasing. Of, I, I can tell you as someone who's worked in uh, trying to advance uh, renewable energy in Palestine as independent Palestinian energy from the sun, uh, it is the Palestinian Authority that continues to buy electricity from the Israeli electric company. And in areas where the Palestinians could have their own independent electricity the Palestinian Authority does very little to encourage it and to advance it. And it's possible because it's economically viable. But uh, the ultimate normalizers are are the Palestinian Authority themselves. Yes. I mean, very much so, including in some of the more, uh, the more brutal ways. I mean, security coordination is uh, deeply unpopular for a lot of reasons. I mean, on top of everything else, uh, on top of the fact that we don't believe their uh, negotiation approach or tactics or anything that they're doing right now is going to get anywhere. Uh, you know, they play a tremendous role in suppressing uh, any other political party or, uh, you know, uh, movement or, frankly, anyone who doesn't follow the same ideological line of, as them. Um, so uh, there are a lot of critiques, um, you know, uh, as far as the, an element of the anti-normalization sentiment that really has nothing to do with speaking to the other side. Uh, on the flip side, there is another element of anti-normalization, which is actually simply a rejection of the legitimacy um, of uh, Israel as an ethno-nationalist state, and that's more a critique of the history. Um, and, and this is this gets to the question of uh, what you know, Gershon is talking about, where in relation to Palestinians recognizing 
the Jewish people have a right to be here. And I think that's a big narrative difference that's there between the two sides. Because on the Palestinian side, um, uh, there's a sense that Jewish people lost the right to be here. That is to say that, you know, in our version of the narrative, uh, there was no strong Palestinian objection to Jewish immigration. Rather, uh, you know, there was a Palestinian objection to uh, the establishment of a Jewish state, you know, partition. That basically, it is one thing for you to arrive in the land, like so many other groups, you know, with the Armenians or uh, uh, whatnot. It's another to kind of carve up a chunk of the territory and establish a, a state there. And that's something... I mean, that, that is in a lot of ways the history of the violence. I mean, if you look at sort of uh, the 1910s, before before Balfour and the uh, and then sort of the, the first, you know, really intense violent events like the Hebron massacre, um, uh, you go from positive neutrality. There were a lot of people in the early 1900s who were quite happy about Jewish refugees and immigration. Um, there are even points in Palestinian history where people encouraged, uh, particularly um, due to their relations with uh, Syrian and um, Iraqi Mizrahi, uh, Jewish immigration to land. Um, further down the line in the early 1900s, uh, um, uh, you have the shift from sort of uh, ambivalence um, to Jewish immigration or even a positive sentiment, you know, trade and whatnot, to uh, hostility. Um, and you see this happen on newspapers. And so the Palestinian newspaper is a great example. Um, to uh, you know the, the greatest possible degree of hostility, and so much of it was a response to the rhetoric of Zionism. Um, putting aside all the ideological stuff, at the end of the day, you have a group of people who are you know referring to us as savages, talking about transfer of populations, um, uh, you know, talking about basically a demographic control of a region, and there is absolutely no way a local population is going to see a group of immigrants show up, talk about establishing a state there. Um, as well as the language they use to refer to us. I mean, they, you know, regard, without getting into debates about terminology, ultimately they, they referred to themselves as colonialists at the time. They, they, they referred to the locals as, uh, um, you know, uh, savages. They, 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 they had distaste for their uh, culture. And so our newspapers then published that rhetoric. And they said, this is what these people are saying about us. This is what they're here to do. And then, and then there was incitement. I mean, uh, this anti-Zionist... And we, we, we generally refer to them as a political movement. So quite separately from Jewish people at the time, at least, all the two merged together 20, 30 years later, um, you know, before the 48 war. Um, but uh, yeah, there was tremendous tension against it, um, increasing hostility. And then post Balfour, there was a sense of the vindication of the threat, you know, uh, that basically, oh yeah, they definitely are here to do this. Um, I mean, uh, the Palestinian ruling class and the educated class was a minority of the population. You have the Nasha Shabiyya and the Hussainis and a bunch of sort of powerful clans and families. Um, and progressively, as word spread around the land, uh, you have this intense sense of when refugees or immigrants arrive in a land, they are, at least for a few generations, guests. Um, and so there's an Arab notion of hospitality, hospitality towards a guest and towards people who arrive in a location. Um, and then there's just a sense of well, the audacity of the you know these refugees or these guests to then all say they want to take a piece of it, uh, and that that is very much the the sentiment. And it was also quite a tribal society, so there's kind of depending on whose territory you know, depending on which tribe or clan's uh, territory you happen to build your new yeshuvin, those are the people who are going to dislike you. Um, and the history went something along those lines. Um, uh, following the Nakba, um, following the Naksa, you know, 
with the destruction of you know 800 villages and uh, the Nakba, the Exodus, a million people between 48 and 67. There is a, a sense then that um, you know, when, when Palestinians talk about Jews not having a right to be here, they are referring to the history of the state of Israel. Um, so it's not a, it's not so much talking about Jewish connection to land or their history here, or the fact that any population uh, can return to a location. In fact, the fact that Jewish people had a connection to the land would almost endear them to the locals if it wasn't for this history. Now, we can harp on history forever, but I don't think Palestinian... We, there is no real way to move on from it until there is some kind of a reconciliation moment. Um, and that is why I see one state, um, you know, federal models as a good place to start. Because as soon as you get people out of the zero-sum game, as soon as Israelis, who many of whom were just born here, or are several generations in, um, and are actually benefiting from the rest restoration of Jewish culture and, and history and civilization in the way in the land, as soon as they don't have to be defensive about it, as soon as they basically don't feel that them engaging with this history is a threat to the existence of the, you could say, the positive aspects of what uh, this history did for them, I think they're in a much better position to come to terms with the ugliness in which it happened, you know, the ugliness it took to get there. Um, and that is what is necessary for the Palestinians to actually engage with the other side. I mean, there is presently no recognition of any of this history from the average Israeli. Most people are not Gershon. I mean, that, that is the reality. I mean, if, uh, um, most Israelis are fairly aware of this history, fairly uncomfortable talking about it, and uh, very quickly shift into a gear where they, they you know, they're they're, they're like, oh, there was an ancient kingdom of Israel here, an ancient kingdom of Judea, as if that is the issue that Palestinians have. I mean, it really isn't about Jewish history. I, I see Jewish history as part of the history of the land and therefore uh, part of my history. Um, it's something I'm actually deeply interested in. Um, and it's, I think it's important to preserve the culture and history and heritage of the land, um, you know, be it Jewish history or, uh, you know, Qadarite or Nabatean tribes and uh, groups. This this is you know one of the most special places on the planet, and, and in my eyes, the most special place. Um, and I think, in, really, in the eyes of the locals, and connection to land is actually what we have in common. So, uh, I think just understanding why there is no real desire to engage. And yes, part of that is education. I mean, we really don't know much about. I, I, I grew up. You know, if you asked me what's a Jew, I would have said I don't know a soldier. <laughs> that was basically uh the the image that would pop into mind so yeah there is very little education um uh, on you know either side without the other um but that is what it comes down to and if you look at israeli media or, you know a hospital or propaganda or, or attempts to basically defend their state because anyone born in a state is going to want to defend it almost every state has a kind of messed up history it's not unique to israel um uh you know you can look at the united states or uh, many modern nation states, um, as soon as you don't have to be defensive about that history, that you can engage with it um, uh, without it without it feeling like a threat, the propaganda and the, and the, and the rhetoric changes. So I think right now, I mean, looking at my perception of the psyche of most Israelis is that they need to defend you know, uh, the goodness of their state at all times, because if at any minute they, they sort of sit there given that there is this other population and relent, they're going to feel like, you know, that the entirety of the international media will descend upon them. And so there is this intense, you know, denial really of the history that they feel is necessary in order to, to basically preserve their right to be there, you know, in the way that Gershon is describing. Um, and I think the message that Palestinians can extend 
is that your ability to come to terms with this history and to reconcile with it is, in our eyes, what gives you the right to be here. It is, it is you divorcing yourself from the ugliness of the history, taking the positive aspects of the fact that you were here, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, whatever it took to get here, there has been a restoration of your connection to the land. You know, you have sabras, um, you know, and you have a restoration of language, uh, you know, of culture, um, uh, and ability to visit all of these historical cities. And it's, if you love your state, if you love the positive aspects of your state, you must come to terms with the, the tremendously ugly history. And, and that is the case for so many countries. Um, and I think when people get past that step um, and getting out of a zero-sum game helps them do that, um, you know, when the, when the ultimate goal is the unity of the land, then telling someone that you coming to terms with this history actually gives you more of a right to be here than less, I think the rhetoric can start to change. Um, you know, uh, basically, um, I guess criticizing the ugly history of what it took to get here becomes a um, uh, something you do to actually defend your connection to this land and your right to be here. I, I, I um, agree largely with almost everything you said. I, I think the reconciling of history and the historical narratives is something that needs to be done together. Um, I, I think that both sides have a lot of owning up of, of, of some of the really bad things we've done in order to be here and to claim our rights to be here and our relationship to each other. And I think I, I always thought of that as a kind of process that happens post-peace agreement, the kind of truth and reconciliation that needs to take place that took place and is continuing to play, take place in places like uh, uh, South Africa. Um, if those processes could happen prior to political agreement, that would be great. I have doubts if it's possible before there's some kind of political agreement for us to be able to do that, for us to all own up to uh, the negative side of our uh, uh, defending our right to exist and our claim uh, to the land and to be in the land. Um, but I, I think it's essential. I think it's necessary. Um, I feel very secure in my own personal identity and my connection to this country uh, that I don't have a problem uh, looking at the really bad things that the Zionist movement did in order to create its state. Ultimately, I believe that Jewish survival made it necessary to have a state of Israel. Uh, I think we could have done it a lot differently. And I think that the last 70 plus years could have been a lot different. Um, but I, I think that essentially there was a moral imperative for the creation of the state of Israel. And I think that's something that most Palestinians can't say or recognize. Um, and, and I know that Palestinians bear the historical brunt of the anti-Semitism that existed in the world that created a moral imperative for the existence of Israel. Um, the Palestinians weren't guilty of the Holocaust or of any part of Jewish history for the last 2,000 years, yet, yet they certainly have paid the price for uh, what happened to Jews around the world. But uh, um, but I think it's it's something that nonetheless we need to look each other in the eyes and say, we're here uh, today in the 21st century. And uh, uh, our focus really needs to be forward of, of how we share this land, how we live together on this land. In, in whatever framework we ultimately decide to do it in, um, I think it has to be based on the principles 
that we're all connected to the land, all of it, that building cages and fences and walls is not the way to live in peace, and that the essential value of equality has to be the basis of any kind of peaceful resolution of the conflict here, that no side has more rights than the other, um, and that we need to find ways that we can freely express our identities, our religious identities, our national identities, but along with that, we also, I think, have to deeply encourage us, all of us, to learn each other's history, to learn each other's language, to learn each other's religion, to not only respect it, but to celebrate the diversity and the similarities that we all have. We're so similar in so many ways. The language, Hebrew and Arabic language, are, are sister languages. And if, if you speak Hebrew, if you speak Arabic, you already know hundreds, thousands of words in the other language, and we don't recognize that, then we should actually be having this conversation in Hebrew and Arabic right now. And, and, and all of our listeners in Israel and Palestine should be free to express themselves in both those languages and to listen and celebrate those languages. These are things that we need to do in order to figure out how to live together. Thank you, Gershon. We're going to start uh, winding down. We're, the conversation is not over. It's going to move to the after party on Discord. Um, Zahir, feel free to respond and then share some final thoughts. Maybe mention what you think people can do to progress um, the Federation solution or just peace in general. And then Gershon, you'll be able to answer that same question. And then we are going to move it to the after party. I'm tossing a link to the Discord. Once you join the Discord on the left-hand side, you'll see it says lounge click on lounge you'll be connected via voice you don't need to speak if you just want to type you you'll see it says lounge text you type there it's an opportunity to interact and engage with gershon and zahir um and if you're new to the page subscribe and if you like this video give it a thumbs up and if you didn't like it thumbs down just express yourself freedom of expression is important anyways zahir all you um yeah, I, I agree with with a lot of what uh, Gershon said, um, and, and this actually this before after thing uh, is an is an interesting question. So I I, I do agree that uh, reconciliation can't happen outside of the uh, context of a political solution, um, and that is simply because you know uh, we have no desire you know growing up in the west flank there is no desire to understand the other or to be friends with with the other given the sense of you know we'll be friends when you take your boot off my neck i mean that, that is the way it feels um and it's a chicken and egg problem because on the other hand there needs to be reconciliation in order for the people to get along and i i think you basically um put that in your political in in your political movement um uh, that is sort of the pitch i think here really um, is to to do the two together. Um, so present a, a vision for what the land could look like, and then rally people around it. And as part of that rallying or the common vision, and seeing that okay, there are people on the other side who want to live in this land equally, who don't agree with the the history of uh, you know uh, this conflict uh, to date, um, and to what their side has done, um, uh, and uh, share this vision for the future. Um, this movement in and of itself becomes a big part of the reconciliation. And I think that is, to some extent, what is missing here. Um, 
there is nothing is going to change with the Israeli-Palestinian narrative via a political solution. You know, if tomorrow our two respective leaders sign a piece of paper saying the conflict is over, the conflict is not over for us. Um, a civil rights movement, on the other hand, a joint um, coalition uh, on people on both sides who share a similar vision for what it should look like, um, and have a, you know, their narratives aren't going to be exactly aligned, but have a have a, a basic understanding of the narrative of the other and the history of the, of the last uh, 100 years. Um, that coalition is what changes people's perspective of the other side. For Palestinians, it allows us to see that not all of our neighbors uh, are the same people we have suffered at the hands of for the last 100 years. But some of them actually do see, see things differently. It, it allows, um, you know, it provides an exception, um, much like the civil rights movement. And, and it was also the beginning of the creation of what will weave, uh, you know, an equal... Uh, society together. Um, that, that is to, some, to, to an extent why I feel the uh, two-state solution has always been uh, poison uh, to the cause. I mean, it, it hides the obvious roadmap to liberation that uh, you know is presented by things like South Africa's anti-apartheid movement, which rallied both local populace um, and the international community around basic principles of equality, human rights, uh, one man, one vote. Um, and uh, began to change that narrative. You know, and you can take the example of the civil rights movement in America, where white and black uh, Americans marched together. Uh, that played a deep, deep role in changing the narrative at the sides hand about each other a generation later. Um, it allows you to not vilify the entirety of another group of people to see that actually they, you know, uh, most of them do do share these values. It's something we can't do right now. And it is why uh, there is no dialogue because there, there's almost um, there's a sense that there's nothing to talk about. Um, the, there's nothing on the table that, that gives me a reason to speak to someone on the other side. And as soon as there is something on the table, as soon as there is a vision that I, as a Palestinian, feels addresses the Palestinian cause and like what uh, matters to me, um, and someone on the other side agrees with that same set of principles, um, then there's a conversation, a real deep conversation, because now you have shared interests um, uh, in your vision for the future of this land um, and in the realization. I mean, that becomes the genuine partner for peace. It's not going to be Abbas and Bibi in a thousand years, um, but you know, it, it is going to be the people who live it. I, and, and I think that if the majority of Israelis were like me and the majority of Palestinians were like you, Zahir, we would have a, a very uh, um, good conversation to have and a good way to move forward. Uh, our, our biggest problem is that the majority of our peoples are not like us. Um, and they are tribal and they are um, um, stiff-necked people who are stuck in an idea. I see a comment here by my friend Ayyad Dajani who said the two-state solution is the only accepted solution. And I hear that from critics all the time in the Palestinian Authority and, of course, um, within the Israeli um, uh, Zionist left who still adhere to the two-state solution as the only solution. And it's very difficult to... And, and, and here we're talking about people on both sides who actually do want to live in peace and uh, have trouble going beyond that two-state solution. We have a huge challenge in front of us in uh, not only not only in reaching out to the people within our own communities who don't support peace, but even those people within our communities who do support peace 
and are still stuck on this idea of the two-state solution as we've seen it uh, move uh, over the last 20, 25 years into complete failure. Um, Gershon, do you want to give a few words on what you think ordinary people could do to uh, progress uh, this before we wrap it up? Well, well, one thing I, I would suggest is that we all, all Israelis should be studying Arabic and all Palestinians should be studying Hebrew. If you want to open up a door, a window to the, to the other side, uh, to culture, to understanding, then it's first through language. Um, that would be a great step forward, but I think that having more of these kind of discussions is important. I would also suggest reading my book, whether it be in Arabic or in English. It's unfortunately not in Hebrew, but uh, it, I think so there's a lot. Of... Link Sorry? in the bio, I'll link in the description okay. already for anyone who wants to check right. that out. Um, but I, I, I think that uh, we, we need to engage. We need to talk. Uh, and, and with social media, it's really possible. I, I tell students all the time that I lecture to, whether they be locals or internationals, it's very easy to go onto Facebook or into Twitter and knock on someone's door and say, hey, I want to know your story. Tell me who you are. And not to argue, not to engage in, in grandstanding, but to honestly say, I want to understand who you are, what you believe in, what's important to you. Tell me who you are. I've been doing this for 50 years, I've never met anyone who told me no when I said, I want to know you. Tell me who you are. Tell me what your story is. And I think that we can do that, and, and it's easy to do it. Unfortunately, Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms have be become very negatively used to build hatred and racism and, and much more hate, hate speak than, than searching an honest discourse and discussion and curiosity and listening. And I think that's something that common people can do very easily and we should encourage it. Great, and uh, that wraps it up for our live session. We're gonna continue the conversation in Discord. I'm gonna leave the link one last time in the chat. Join us, click lounge, and you can interact with Gershon and Zahir personally. Uh, to anybody celebrating Pulim this weekend, Chag Pulim Sameach, uh, they say on Purim it's a mitzvah to drink, so do that mitzvah, but stay safe, friends. And with that, signing off.